Well, it's his joy to welcome me back. I can assure you it's my joy to be in the receiving end. Thank you, Stephen, for the warm, warm words of welcome. I have many delightful American friends gathered over many, many years and coming to this wonderful country. And you know, I've discovered one thing about all my American friends. They all want to be Irish. <laughs> Ever wondered why? I have no idea. But you know, it's a great joy to be with you today. It's my third time to be with you. And I've discovered that in the last year that uh, Brother Stephen and I have one more thing in common. We are both now in our 50s. <laughs> and that's good news, isn't it? Now turn with me then to the book of 1 Thessalonians and chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians and chapter 4, please. And we want to commence our Bible reading today at verse 13, moving down to the end of the chapter in verse 18. Stephen has said, I now serve the Lord under the umbrella of the Messianic testimony. Let me just share one very simple thought with you before we read God's Word together. Do you realize that more Jewish people are coming to faith in Christ today than at any other time since the birth of the church at Pentecost? That is tremendous news. Keep on praying. Let's turn to verse 13, shall we? Paul writing here says, Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive who were left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. And we pray that God may do that to your heart and to mine. It seems to me, dear friends, from reading God's word, the next great event in God's prophetic calendar is that moment when millions are missing. Lift off for glory is number one. On God's agenda for the church. To me, this is the ultimate grace trip. It's what the old gospel song calls that great getting up morning. Now, 2,000 years have come and gone since the Lord Jesus made that glowing promise to his bewildered disciples in the upper room. You remember John 14 and verse 3. So much has happened across the world since then. We think of some key events, even in the last 100 years, events of cosmic significance. For example, we have the two great world wars. We have seen the establishment of the modern state of Israel, even this year celebrating her diamond anniversary. We think of the emergence of Europe as a major player in global politics. There is the political clout and the economic influence of China. 
There is a dollar effect in world markets. I mean, America sneezes and the rest of us in the world, well, we catch pneumonia. And right now we have what you guys are calling the credit crunch. There is the fall of Eastern Bloc communism. There is the rise of militant Islam. And don't forget, dear friends, her aspiration is global domination. They want to run the entire show. There is the threat of a potential nuclear holocaust, globalization, terrorism, and so the list goes on ad infinitum. Today, dear friends, I believe we are well past the 11th hour. And with the darkness deepening all around us, time is rapidly running out. And so when we read the signs of the times, they all tell us it can't be long until Jesus Christ returns. And something we need to realize, the prophetic clock is synchronized with God's time. And don't ever forget, you're God and mine. He is always on schedule. Come with me then, Bible's open. We want to unpack some of the truths in this amazing chapter, 1 Thessalonians 4. What we have here is a twofold picture. In the opening 12 verses, we see the people of God radiating holiness. Ever wondered why? Well, here is a church energized in the Spirit. In the second half of the chapter, we find the people of God are reflecting hope because here is a church expectant in the world. Another quick look at the chapter, and you will discover this. It is one of those chapters that are filled with a series of remarkable contrasts. Paul zooms in on life, then he zeroes in on death. One minute he's talking about the here and now. The next minute he's focusing on the there and then. He's thinking about time in one section, and then he leaps forward and begins to explore and expand on eternity. He's talking initially about those who were wide awake, and then he makes a reference to those who have fallen asleep. Basically, Paul is talking about living well and dying well. If we want to die well, it means we look forward to a better day when you and I shall see the king in all his stunning beauty. I think Charles Wesley, his splendid words, capture this princely attitude when he says, Happy if with my latest breath I may but gasp his name, preach him to all and cry in death, Behold, behold the Lamb. Hope well, isn't that what postmodern man is searching for? You see, dear friends, the trouble is, unlike Job, modern man is often looking in the wrong place. You remember the old saint asked the double-barrel question in chapter 17, verse 15. He said, where then is my hope? And he went on to say, who can see any hope for me? Well, friends, when we see what is happening all around us in today's world, we could easily be driven over the edge of despair. I mean, there are times in your life and mine when our back is pinned to the wall, when we have that awful sinking feeling in the pit of our tummy, 
when we feel like giving up and even giving in. In frenetic moments like that, we urgently need hope. I love the way the author talks about a better hope in Hebrews 6 and verse 19. There he likens it to an anchor for the soul. You know what that means? It means in your life and mine, when the sands of time are shifting, and even when they're sinking, we have a hope that is sure and steadfast. You know, friends, such a hope gives to you and to me the encouragement we need to go on with the Lord. It enables every one of us to swing for the fences. It keeps us plodding on through deep furrows when the burdens of ministry are so heavy. It helps us hang in there when life's battles are unbelievably hard. My friend, when we have hope in our hearts, we can be up people in a down world. You see, hope isn't a pill that we swallow with a glass of water. No, it's more like a surging rush of adrenaline in the veins of the Christian. You know what it does? It gives us a buzz. For where there is Christ, there is hope. The years roll by, and the older we are, the faster they seem to go. The Christian's hope becomes so much more glorious. That's what Solomon meant when he said in Proverbs 4, the path of the righteous is like the first gleams of dawn shining ever brighter till the full light of day. My friend, the closer we are to the coming again of Jesus, the brighter the hope shines in your heart and mine. I think a similar chord is struck in Jeremiah 29, where God came to the aid of his beleaguered servant. There was a man for whom home seemed to have evaporated. Do you remember the moment when the God of the covenant came and he whispered in Jeremiah's ear? And this is what he said. He said, my friend, I know the plans I have for you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Beloved, the world hopes for the best. But here's the good news. The Christian has the best hope. I think the hymn writer Jim Hill captures this inspiring theme, these wonderful words. There is coming a day when no heartache shall come, no more clouds in the sky, no more tears to dim the eye. All is peace forevermore on that happy golden shore. What a day, glorious day that will be. Come with me then, look at verse 13, where Paul is talking about their fear. You see, the people in the church at Thessalonica, they were extremely worried, puzzled, perplexed. By the minute, they were getting themselves into a state of muddled anxiety. They were uptight. They were riddled with doubt. It has been well said by an American writer, the doubts are the ants in the pants of faith. I thought you'd like that one. That's not mine, I hasten to add. But you know, the big problem is simply this. You know, some of their close friends and their loved ones had died. All sorts of questions were going through their mind. You know, would they be left behind? What has actually happened to them? Are they all right? Shall we see them again? Maybe even wondering, where are they now? 
Well, I reckon, dear friends, if you and I had been standing in their sandals in the sand, we probably would have felt much the same. And so their attitude is perfectly understandable. But that said, their fear is based on ignorance. They knew a lot. Sure they did. But they didn't know all that they needed to know. They knew that Jesus was coming back. But there were so many things in their lives, in their community, that didn't seem to make a lot of sense. Two and two just didn't make four. You see, the fact is, they eagerly wanted the Lord to come. They knew it was a climax. They knew it was the great event that signaled the pinnacle of redemptive history. And I tell you, like them, they didn't want to miss it. That explains why Paul says what he does in the opening phrase, we do not want you to be ignorant. My dear friend, in moments like that, ignorance is not bliss. Death is usually the last thing we want to talk about. You know, it makes us squirm. We feel a touch uncomfortable, maybe even a tad awkward. You see, when we talk about death or people talk to us about death, we prefer to blank it out. And yet the reality is, life being what it is, we just can't walk away from it. Death tends to be an intruder into our lives. It is often seen as an uninvited guest into your home and into mine. It has well been described as the king of terrors. At the same time, it is even the terror of kings. You remember Paul described it in 1 Corinthians 15 as being man's last enemy. Well, right here in verse 13, he describes it as sleep. Now, the amazing thing about it is this. That sleep is a word that promises a great deal. It reminds us that physical death is not the end of the road. Let's face it, dear friends. Those of us who go to bed at night, well, you know, we do expect to wake up the following morning, don't we? We all know from experience, sleep is something temporary. It is transient, it is fleeting, it is passing. Hey, folks, it just don't last. And so when a Christian dies, it's like going to bed. They have fallen asleep in Jesus. And when they place their head on the pillow, they're waiting for the dawning of a new day. Hey, they're longing for that morning of resurrection. Because after the evening of rest, there always comes the morning of great rejoicing. And so when our friends and our family pass away, we say to them two simple and yet meaningful words. Good night. But, and here is the source of our glorious hope. When we meet again, we will greet each other with the immortal words, Good morning. Good morning. You see, Paul gave them a brilliant illustration when he used the example of sleep to convey what happens to a Christian at the point of death. Now, let me clear the air, dear friends. He's certainly not talking here about soul sleep, as some people have wrongly suggested. You know, that would be a travesty of truth, because the reality is the Christian is never more alive than when he is over there in the presence of God, his Savior. Pastor Paul is a realist. 
How do I know? Well, we know that because he follows up his illustration with a word of instruction. You know, Paul knows, and many of us can identify with it even today, that when we lose a loved one, we will sorrow. We miss them, and we miss them a lot. We are crestfallen. There will be days of despair, days in your life and mine when we are inconsolable. My friend, we feel it ever so deeply. Sure we do. There's a vacant chair in the corner of a room. There's a vacant seat around the family table. There's an empty feeling in the life, and the old heart throbs. Uh, The memories are precious, but at times they can be horrendously painful, and they certainly linger. But Paul says down here, it's only for a short time. I often think of the words in the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus. They are answered at the home call of every believer. You remember there in John 17 in the upper room, the Lord Jesus is interceding to his Father, and this is what he prayed. He said, Father, I want those that you have given to me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. My friend, that adds a new dimension to death. It puts it all in perspective. For now we see it through the keyhole of heaven. And that prayer is answered at the home call of every pilgrim bound for glory. So he talks about their fear. Take a look secondly at verse 14 when he talks about a foundation. Paul declares emphatically here in verse 14, we believe. Now, I don't know about you, but for me personally, it does my heart so much good to meet a man who knows exactly what he believes. Wouldn't you say amen to that? I certainly would. But the question is, what does he believe? Well, two fundamental truths. Number one, Jesus died. And number two, the Lord is risen. I believe, dear friends, this is the irreducible core of the Christian gospel. This is what the apostles preached. This is what the church believes. These, from my perspective, and I know from yours as well, these are non-negotiable truths. My friend, here are facts that can never be altered, that can never be amended. Here is a glorious certainty that cannot ever be trashed. These are the central tenets of your faith and mine. It's an empty cross. It's an empty tomb. And combined, they say all that needs to be said. Death has died. Love has won. Christ has conquered. So what? You may be asking. Well, you see, Paul goes on to say, does he not, in the next phrase. He says, because of this, we believe. In other words, since that is what happened to Jesus, the same will happen to those of us who happen to know Jesus. He died on a cross, but for him, that wasn't the end of the story. He rose again on the third day, on that first Easter Sunday morning. My friend, for you and I gathered here, and for those who were listening in some other way, one day we may die. But thanks be to God, we shall rise also. 
Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, he is the token that one day the harvest will be gathered home. Bodies will rise from the earth to be reunited with the soul, and we shall meet the Lord. That's what Peter talks about in 1 Peter 1. And Paul in Romans 8 and verse 23, they say we are waiting for the redemption of the body. The Gaithers, they focus our confidence in the Lord with these wonderful words. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future and life is worth the living just because he lives. You see what Paul is doing? He talks about their fear. And then he talks about a firm foundation. Now in verse 15, he talks about a fact. He talks about a fact. It seems to me, dear friends, that Paul is at pains to remind the dear people here, this promise is not a figment of a fertile imagination. You know, there is nothing illusory or dreamlike about it. Paul isn't pulling the wool over their eyes. He's not lulling them into a false sense of security. No, no. He says quite emphatically here, this is the word of the Lord. What does that mean? It means it's a direct revelation from the living God. My friend, this is God's pure word, period. We take the phrase at face value. It means what it says. It says what it means. We can believe it for a carries authority. These words and this truth is a glorious certainty. It is 100% authentic. It is totally reliable. It is absolutely credible. Then did you see what Paul does? He goes on to develop the argument by drawing attention to two types of people who will be most affected when the Lord returns. First, says Paul, those who were alive. And secondly, says Paul, those who are asleep. It seems to me, dear friends, the whole emphasis in God's word is on the sudden and the soon return of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, the Lord is at hand. He could be back at any moment. Our redemption is nearer today than it was when we first placed our trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord. Jesus is standing at the threshold, waiting for the final signal from the Father. Beloved friends, do you realize it has never, ever been so late before? The countdown to zero hour is getting lower every passing day. I believe today in my heart that we could be the generation alive when Jesus breaks through the clouds. And if we are, we'll not experience death. It's happened before. Oh yeah, it has, you know. You remember our friend Enoch in Genesis chapter 5. You remember when his walk with the Lord ended? He left this world not by the dark tunnel of death, but by the golden bridge of translation. Remember Elijah in 2 Kings chapter 2? Another fine example. For when his work for the kingdom of God was done for Elijah, I mean, it was instant glory. You know what it is? It's a now you see him, now you don't syndrome. Oh yeah. 
Somebody said one day, tongue in both cheeks, that you and I, hey, we're not looking for the undertaker. No, no, we're looking for the uptaker. There's no point in you and I burying our head in the sand. We have to face reality. And the watertight fact is this. There are countless millions of God's dear people who have gone on before us. Today, they are with Christ. The niggling, nagging question is this. Would they miss out at the second coming of Jesus? Will you look at the text another time? See the rare privilege that is theirs. Paul says they will rise. But then he didn't stop there, did he? He went on to say they will rise first. That's a life-changing word, first. They don't miss out. How could they? Why should they? They'll not be left behind when Jesus comes for his own. My dear friend, I reckon they're going to get the front seats. I believe in my heart these dear people, they will have the place of honor when the roll is called up yonder. They have caught an earlier train to their final destination. And today, you and I are standing on the station platform. My friend, we may be on the next one. You know, that's what happens when our number is up. That's what happens when our time is up. If we know the Lord, we're winners every time. And so in light of all that Paul has been saying, let me remind you of the words of a great old gospel hymn that simply declares, Sweet is the hope that is thrilling my soul. I know I'll see Jesus someday. He talks about their fear. He talks about a foundation. And he talks about a fact. Now, do you see what Paul goes on to do in verse 16 and in verse 17? He drafts out a kind of schedule. You ready for this? Are you? Here are seven things you've always wanted to know about the rapture. Okay? Stay with me, my friend. Number one. Number one. It is personal. It's personal. You read the Bible in verse 16. The one who is coming back from glory is whom? It is the Lord himself. Look, friends, an angel will not be sent as a last-minute substitute. No. No emissary will be sent from glory to escort us home to heaven. No. Jesus is coming. And the Greek in the text is emphatic. Jesus is the bridegroom. One day he's coming back to take his bride home to glory. You remember that unassailable truth in John 14? Jesus said, I will come again. You remember the message of the angels on Ascension Day? They said, this same Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. My friend, nothing could be clearer. Jesus is coming himself. For you and for me. Good news? I think so. It's personal. Number two, it is something that is powerful. You know, when we stop and think about it today, that means there are three welcome sounds intimately associated with the advent of Jesus. And the first one is right here. It's the sound of a shout. You know, it's a military expression. It's a command or an order that is given. 
Jesus will speak with a voice that wakes the dead. In fact, let you into a secret. Three times in Scripture do we read of the Lord raising his voice to the level of a shout. And guess what? Every single time it's followed by resurrection. True? First one at the grave of dear Lazarus in John 11. Second, on the cross, we read of that in John 19 and Matthew 27. The third one, right here in verse 16. He's coming back from glory as the chief shepherd of the sheep. When he shouts above the din and the noise of a bustling world, an innumerable company will rise, and they will rise from the four corners of the earth right into his intimate presence. What a day that will be. Second great mover and shaker in the drama is the archangel Michael. You know, I think we can safely describe him today as the chief prince of the host of heaven. He's number one, if you like, in the angelic pecking order. Now, Michael's participation is a very clear signal to a watching world that three things will have happened, okay? Number one, all the nefarious hordes of hell have been roundly defeated. And number two, death will have lost its sting. And number three, the grave will not have gained a victory. Do you know what that means, dear friends? This is the moment in time when heaven breaks off diplomatic relations with planet Earth. This is the moment in time when the blood-washed nationals of heaven are summoned home to glory. The last notable sound in the Advent adventure is a triumph of the trump of God. 1 Corinthians 15 You remember that old song that we love to sing penned by James Black? It goes like this. When the trumpet of the Lord shall sound and time shall be no more and the morning breaks eternal bright and fair when the saved verse shall gather over on the other shore and the roll is called up yonder I'll be there. Take heart, my dear friend. You think of the noise associated with this event. I can tell you today, there's no way you'll ever sleep through it. Jesus is coming. It's personal. It's powerful. Three, it is purposeful. You know, sometimes we ask the question, the fairly obvious question, well, you know, why is Jesus coming back again? Well, here's the reason, dear friends, equally obvious. You know, he's coming for you and he's coming for me. First, the dead, then the living. I reckon this is a capital truth. You know, it simply says this, that those who have gone on before us, they are not treated as second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. But you know what else it does? It also affirms our eternal position in Christ. For Paul refers to those here as being the dead in Christ. What a lovely turn of phrase. My friend, here's the bottom line. If we are in Christ, we are always in Christ, whether alive or dead. 
Isn't that the heartbeat of Paul's teaching at the end of Romans 8? Where he reminds us that nothing and no one can separate us from the love of God. Beloved, you realize we are glued to him with a bond that is unbreakable. At the risk of sounding simplistic, you and I will be transported supernaturally into a brand new world. Oh yeah. He will snatch the saints away with an awesome use of irresistible force. Snatched from the clutches of Satan. Snatched from a fallen world. Snatched from the serious limitations of the flesh. Snatched from the jaws of death. Snatched from the confines of the grave. Snatched away from the terrors of the terrible coming wrath of God. Beloved, it's personal. It's powerful. It's purposeful. Number four, it is practical. You know why? Because Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 15 that in that day we will be changed. I think it probably appeals to the Irishman's warped sense of humor, but I think that's an excellent verse to hang on a wall of a church crash, don't you? You know, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. I think it's a good one. But you see, when it happens in your life and mine, it will happen in a moment, in a split second, in the twinkling of an eye, just as fast as that. And when it occurs, you see what's going to happen? He will give us all a brand new body. Aren't you glad? I certainly am. Not only a brand new body, but a brand new wardrobe. Garments with God's designer label attached to every one of them. The decay and disease that plague and ravage our bodies today, it will all be stripped away. All of those things that tear us and wear us down, they will no longer have a grip upon us. In a flash, you and I will be like Jesus himself. Isn't that where the words of John come into sharp focus? He says in his first epistle, in chapter 3, we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. My friend, when Jesus returns to the air, and when the trumpet sounds, you know what he's going to do? He will upgrade all his people to the status of Christ-likeness. What a great God we have. Wouldn't you agree? Number five. It is something precious. It's precious. You know why? Because we'll not only be like him, thank God, but we'll also be with him. I've good news for you, dear friends. The meeting in the air will be the best and the biggest and the brightest meeting you'll ever be in. The reality is no wonder it is in the air because there's not a stadium on planet Earth to contain the goodly crowd. For the benefit of my dear American friends, it will make the Super Bowl pale into insignificance. Oh, yes, it will. Satan is labeled the prince of the power of the air. But in that day, the air will not be his domain. It will belong to the people of God, to the followers of the Lamb. Beloved, on that day and in that day, we will be in cloud nine when the saints go marching in. I think it holds a mouth-watering prospect, don't you? 
of a happy and a joyful reunion as we link up again with those who have preceded us, those who have gone on to their rest from their labors and their eternal reward. I have no doubts in my heart that we will recognize our loved ones in glory, and together we shall worship the King in all his incomparable, impeccable beauty. I look forward to that day, do you not? Twenty years ago, my wife and I buried our only son, 15 years of age, tragically killed. One day we shall meet again, and that's what makes these verses so meaningful, so endearing, something to look forward to, and something to sink our teeth into, because together, forever, we shall worship the Lamb upon the throne. Many things down here, as I've said, that we don't fully understand. But then we will know, and then it will all make sense. Many questions in your mind and certainly in mine that we have today, they go unanswered. But over there, we'll understand it better by and by. All things will be made plain. My friend, our dilemma is this, that so long as we're here on this old world, we see through tinted glass. But then, says Paul, it will be face to face with Christ my Savior. In this life, we only see the underside of the tapestry. Threads are hanging all over the place. At times, it doesn't look too good. You know, it's difficult to recognize the pattern when you're lying face down on a carpet. But over there on the other side, we'll appreciate the words of Anne Rose Cousin when she said, I'll bless the hand that guided. I'll bless the heart that planned when throned where glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. Beloved, over there, verse 28 in the eighth chapter of Romans will become a wonderful reality. You know why? Because it's not till the loom is silent and the shuttle cease to fly will God unroll the canvas and explain the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. What a day when we'll meet again. And number six, it is predicted. Great events cast their shadows before them. We see that in Leviticus 25 in the year of Jubilee. You know, that's when the trumpet sounded all over the land. Four things. We don't have time to look at them. Let me just quickly outline them for you. Verse 10a, it was a time of release. Verse 10b, it was a time of reunion. Verse 11, it was a time of rest. And verse 4, a time of rejoicing. And verse 12, you see, the year of Jubilee is pointing forward to the rapture of the saints of God. Final point, number seven. It's permanent. You say to me, Sam, that's great, but how long is it going to last for? You know, that's a six million dollar question, isn't it? Is it a day or a week or a month or maybe even a year or two? No, 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 no. Thank God. It is forever with the Lord bliss unending, pleasures forevermore. Oh, my friend, for you and me, it may have an entry point, 
But take heart, there's no exit door. We're there to stay. And each day is one day nearer. And every step that we take is one step closer. And that's why Paul says what he does in the final verse. He says, encourage each other with these words. My dear friend, if truth doesn't fire you up, I don't know what else will. You know, Paul doesn't say these words to prompt us to set dates to sell up, to go to a high mountain, and to wait for the rapture. No, no. When it comes to coming of Jesus, I agree with one writer when he says that we're not on the organizing committee, but we are on the welcoming committee. We know the king is coming. We just don't know when. Paul says here, let's pull out all the stops. Let's live a life of walking close with God. My friend, the challenge is unmistakably clear. We are ready for heaven, but are we ready to meet the Lord? Will you join me in saying perhaps today, Jesus may come. This is the ultimate grace trip. The grave is not our goal. We are born and we're bound for glory. Hey, for you and for me, the sky is not the limit. Beloved, there is better on before. The best is yet to be. Say this in closing. You recall the passion and emotion in John's prayer when he found himself exiled on the craggy Isle of Patmos, way out there in the Greek Aegean Sea. The old preacher man cried from the depths of his heart. What should be our response? He said, Amen. Come, come, Lord Jesus. Maranatha, the Lord is coming. Amen. Father, we thank you again today for that tremendous hope, inspirational hope. It brightens our day. It warms our heart. May it, Father, enthuse every one of us to be the kind of people that you want us to be, to be sold out to Jesus Christ. And the nearer we are to your coming back again, Lord, help us to lay our lives on the altar of sacrifice. Help us, our Father, to count nothing dear, that we might stand before him unashamed at the end of time. Bless your word. Bless your people. For Jesus' sake, amen.